That Printer of Udell's by Harold Bell Wright. Read by Amy Zuck on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Chapter 23. That Printer of Udell's Leads the Way. After several weeks of careful investigation and study of the conditions and needs of Boyd City, along the line suggested by Reverend Cameron in his address before the Young People's Union, a plan to meet these conditions was at last fixed upon, the main points of which were as follows. That a society or company be organized and incorporated to furnish places of recreation and education for young men and women. The place to be fitted with a gymnasium, library, reading rooms, social parlors, a large auditorium, and smaller classrooms for work along special lines. There should also be a department where men, out of employment, might earn something to eat and a place to sleep, by working in wood yards, coal mines, factories, or farms connected with the institution, and a similar place for women. It also provided for a medical dispensary and hospital for the care of the sick. The whole institution was to be under the charge of some Christian man who should deliver an address on the teachings of Christ every Sunday afternoon in the large auditorium. Besides this, Bible classes could be organized by different workers as they chose, for this restriction, that no teaching of any particular sect or denomination should be allowed, and only the life and laws of Jesus Christ should be studied. Classes and other studies, such as pertain to the welfare or the government of the people, could be organized for those who wished, all educational work being under the supervision of directors educated and elected by the society. Every department of the institution was to be free to the public at all hours. To make this possible, the funds of the society would be raised from the sale of shares, for which the holder was to be paid annually $25. Members of the association were entitled to one vote in the society for every four shares. It was expected that the department for the needy would be self-supporting. The purpose and plans of the society were to be fully set forth in a little pamphlet and placed in the hands of every citizen. The people were to be urged to cooperate with the institution by refusing absolutely to give any man able to work either food, clothing, or lodging on the ground that he could obtain the needed help by paying for it in labor at the institution and that they further assist the work by contributing clothing, by employing laborers, and using the pro products of the institution as far as possible. The office of the superintendent was to be in direct communication with the police station, and anyone applying for help and refusing to work when it was offered would be turned out to the authorities to be dealt with for vagrancy. The hope was expressed that the city would be cooperative with the institution by contributing liberally for the building fund and by using the workers in their street cleaning department. When the time came to hear the committee's report, the opera house was crowded as it seldom was for any political speech or theatrical display. The young people from the various societies occupied the front seats on the floor of the house, and back of them, in the dress circles and the galleries, were the general public, while on the rostrum were the leading businessmen, bankers, merchants, and the city officers together with the committee. "'Look there, Bill,' said a saloon keeper, who had come to watch his interest. "'Look at that!' Blast me if that ain't Banker Lindsay. And see them reporters? And there's the editor of the Whistler. Say, this ain't no bloody church meeting. There ain't a preacher on the stage. Them fellers mean business. We've got to watch out if they keep on this tack. 
And would you look at the people? Come on out of here, growled his companion, a gambler. We don't want any truck with this outfit. I'm going to stay and see what they propose doing, said the other. Get a grip on yourself and wait. Just then the assembly was called to order, and the two men dropped into seats near the rear entrance. The president stated the object of the meeting and reviewed the action of the previous one at the Zion Church, where Cameron had spoken, strongly emphasizing the fact that this was not a meeting of the Young People's Society only, but that everyone present was to have a share in it, and all would feel free to express themselves either by voice or ballot. Mr. Richard Falconer, the chairman of the committee, will make the report, and at their request will speak for a few minutes on the subject. As Dick arose from his place in the rear of the stage and stepped forward, the saloon keeper turned to his companion, and in a loud whisper said, Say, ain't he that bum printer you dells? The other nodded and then replied as his companion began to speak again. Shut up, let's hear what he's going to say. As Dick came slowly forward to the front of the rostrum and stood for a moment as though collecting himself, the audience, to a man almost, echoed the thought that the saloon keeper had so roughly expressed. Could it be possible that this was the poor tramp who had once gone from door to door seeking a chance to earn a crust of bread? And then as they looked at the calm, clear-cut, determined features and the tall, well-built figure, neatly clothed in a business suit of brown, they burst into involuntary applause. A smile crept over Dick's face as he bowed his handsome head in grateful acknowledgement. And then he held up his hand for silence. Instantly a hush fell over the audience, and in a moment they were listening with intense interest to the voice of the once-tramp printer. Our president has already detailed to you an account of the meeting preceding this. You understand that I am but the mouthpiece of the council appointed at that time, but I do but speak their will, their thoughts, their aims, as they have voiced them in our meetings. He then told of the methods adopted by the committee, of the help they had received, and how they had at last decided upon the report which he was about to submit, and then carefully detailed the plan, enlarging upon the outlines as he proceeded. Drawing upon the mass of information gathered in the few weeks, he painted the city in its true colors, as shown in the light of their investigation, and then held out the wonderful promises of the plan for the future. As he talked... Dick forgot himself, forgot his audience. He saw only the figure of Christ and heard him say, Insomuch as ye did it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it unto me. While his hearers sat lost to the surroundings under the magic spell of his eloquence, an eloquence that even his most intimate friends never dreamed that he possessed, Charlie Bowen was enraptured. Clara Wilson wept and laughed and wept again. Uncle Bobby could only say, to be sure, while George Udell sat in wonder. Could this splendid man, who with his flashing eye and glowing face, with burning words and graceful gesture, was holding that immense audience subject to his will, could this be the wretched creature who once fell at his feet, fainting with hunger? Truly, he thought, the possibilities of life are infinite. The power of the human soul cannot be measured, and no man guesses the real strength of his closest friends. As Dick finished and turned to resume his seat by the side of Mr. Wicks, applause came from the people. In vain the chairman rapped for order. They would not stop. While in the rostrum, men were crowding around the young orator, standing on chairs and reaching over each other's shoulders to grasp his hand. 
At last the president turned to Dick. Mr. Faulkner, can you stop them? Dick, with face now as pale as death and lips trembling with emotion, came back to the front of the stage. I thank you again and again for your kindness and the honor that you've shown me. But may I further trespass upon that kindness by reminding you that this matter will never be met by clapping hands or applauding voices. Too long in the past have we applauded when our hearts were touched and allowed the sentiment to die away with the echo of our enthusiasm. Shall it be so this time? Men and women, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Christ who died on Calvary, what will you do with the least of these, his brethren? As he again took his seat, the gambler, who with his friend had been sitting, drinking in every word of Dick's speech, sprang to his feet and cried in a loud, clear voice, Mr. President. Upon being recognized by the chair, who knew him and called him by name, every head turned, for all knew of Chris Chambers, the most notorious gambler in the city. Said Chambers, I came here tonight out of curiosity to see if this movement in any way threatened my business as a professional gambler. I have, as most of you know, for the last five years been conducting my place in your city in open violation to your laws. Tonight, for the first time, I see myself in a true light. And as a testimony of my good faith and as evidence of the truth of my statement, when I say that I will never again take money from my fellow men, but an honest business, I wish to make the motion that the report of this committee be accepted, that the plan be approved, and that the committee be discharged with the hearty thanks of the citizens of Boyd City. The motion was seconded and carried. Then came the critical moment. For a full minute, there was a pause. What is the will of the meeting? said the chairman, calmly, but with a silent prayer. There was a buzz of conversation all over the house. Every man was asking his neighbor, what next? For a short time, it looked as those things would be at a standstill, but upon the stage, men were putting their hands together, and soon, banker Lindsay shouted, Mr. Chairman! Instantly, the people became quiet and all turned towards Boyd City, leading financer. I'm requested to ask all those who wish to become charter members of the association to suge as suggested in the report of the committee to meet here on the stage at once, and I move that we adjourn. The president, after calling attention of the audience to the importance of answering Mr. Lindsay's request, immediately put the question and the assembly dismissed. Among the first to push his way to the front was the stalwart form of the gambler, Chambers, and the stage was soon crowded with businessmen and not a few women. Mr. Lindsay looked around. Where's Falconer, he said. No one knew. And when Dick could not be found, Mr. Lindsay called the company to order. The editor of the Whistler was chosen to preside with Mr. Conklin, the express agent for secretary. Then a committee on the Constitution and the bylaws was appointed, and the company adjourned to meet in the Commerce Club rooms the next Wednesday night. But where was Dick? Unnoticed by the audience, while their attention was diverted towards Mr. Lindsay, he had slipped from the rear of the stage and had made his way by the back stairs to the street. A half hour later, some of the people on their way home from the meeting noticed a tall figure, dressed in a business suit of brown, standing in the shadow of the trees on the avenue, looking upward at a church spire, built in the form of a giant hand. 
and at the darkened stained-glass window in which was wrought the figure of Christ holding a lamb in his arms. Later, they might have seen that same figure walking slowly past a beautiful residence a few blocks farther up the street, and when opposite a corner window, pausing a moment to stand with bared head, while lips moved slowly as the whispering of benediction upon those whose memory filled the place with pleasure and with pain. About one o'clock on the following Wednesday, Uncle Bobby Wicks dropped into the printing office. Udell had not returned from dinner. Good afternoon, Mr. Wicks, said Dick, looking up from his work. Take a seat. You want to see the proofs of those letterheads, I suppose. Jack, take a proof of that stuff to Mr. Wicks. Uncle Bobby sank, puffing into a chair. Wished I didn't get so fat. Quit smoking about a month ago. Why, she wanted me to. To be sure, I don't care nothing for it, now how. Mighty mean habit, too. Where's your pipe? Dick smiled. Oh, I haven't any now. Ha, huh. took to smoking cigars, I reckon. No, said Dick, I don't smoke at all. Oh. Uncle Bobby looked long and thoughtfully at his young friend. To be sure, I don't. Much. But I told wife this morning I'd have to begin again if I don't quit getting so plaguy fat. Do you reckon it'd make me sick? Dick laughed. You look rather flushy, he said encouragingly. Well, you're a good deal fatter yourself than you were when I first seen you, said Uncle Bobby, looking him over with a critical eye. Yes, admitted Dick. I guess I am. There are my fat years, you know. I'm getting to look at those lean ones as a very bad dream. Dick's young helper handed them a proof sheet, and after looking over the work for a few moments, Mr. Wick said, That new association meetings tonight, don't it? Dick nodded, and the older gentleman continued carelessly as he arose to go. Stop for me when you go by, will you? And we'll go down together. But I'm not going, said Dick quickly. Uncle Bobby dropped back into his seat with a jar and grasped the arms of his chair, as though about to be thrown bodily to the ceiling. Not going, he gasped. Why, what's the matter with you? And he glared wildly at the young man. Nothing particularly new is the matter, said Dick, smiling at the old gentleman's astonishment. My reason is that I cannot become a member of the association when it is organized, and so have no right to attend the meeting tonight. I may go in after a time, but I cannot now. Why not? said Uncle Wicks, still staring. <laughs> because I haven't the money. Uncle Bobby settled back into his chair with a sigh of relief. Oh, is that all? <laughs> to be sure, I thought maybe you'd gone back up about something. Anyhow. Yeah, that's all, said Dick quietly, and did not explain how he had spent everything in his search for the wealthy hardware merchant's daughter. But perhaps Uncle Bobby needed no explanation. Well, let me tell you, you're going anyhow, and you're going to have voting power too. Be a pretty kettle of fish if after that speech of yourn you were in the company. Be like trying to make a cheese without any milk. But I haven't the money, and that's all there is about it. I'll go in as soon as I can. Well, you can borrow it, can't you? Borrow? What security do I have? What security can I give? Ain't your Christianity security enough? 
Dick laughed at him. Is that the way men do business in Boyd City? Well, you can laugh if you want to, but that's about the best security a fellow can have in the long run. Anyhow, it's good enough for me. I'll lend you a hundred for a year. To be sure, he added hastily as he saw Dick's face, you'll have to pay me the same interest I get from other fellers. I've got the money to loan. It's all the same to me whether I loan it to you or some other man. Suppose I die, then what? asked Dick. Well, if Christ goes on your note, I reckon it'll be good sometime, muttered Uncle Bobby half to himself, as he took a checkbook from his pocket and filled it out. I'll fix up the papers this afternoon. Don't forget to stop for me. When Dick and Uncle Bobby reached the rooms of the commercial club that evening, they found them filled with a large company of interested citizens, and when the opportunity was given, over 200 enrolled as members of the association. Mr. Lindsay, the banker, was elected president, and Mr. Wallace, a merchant, for vice president. Then, with great enthusiasm, the unanimous ballot of the association was cast for Mr. Rich Falconer as secretary, while, to Dick's great delight, Uncle Bobby was given the place of treasurer. The papers of the city gave a full and enthusiastic account of the new movement, and when the citizens saw that the association was really a fact, with men at its head who were so well qualified to fill their respective positions, they had confidence in the plan and began straight away to express that confidence by becoming members. A prospectus setting forth of the object of the association, together with its plans and constitution, was gotten out by the secretary and sent to the citizens. The papers continued to speak well of the plan, and finally, though the influence of the strong businessmen interested, the Commerce Club endorsed the movement, and through the influence of that body, the city appropriated $5,000 to the building fund, 1000 a year for five years. With such backing as it now had, the association began preparing for active work. A fine building site was purchased, and Dick was sent to study different plans and institutions that were in operation for similar work in several of the large cities. Well, goodbye, old man, said Udell, when Dick ran into the office on his way to the depot. I can see right now that I'll lose a mighty good printing partner one of these days. Dick shook his head as he grasped his employer's hand, and with hope shining in his eyes, replied, You know why I'm glad for this chance to go east again, George. And his friend answered, Right as usual, Dickie. God bless you. If Clara was somehow, somewhere, way out there in the big world without a friend, uh, I reckon I'd go too.